0: Uh, before I start my talk, I want to talk just for a moment about why the class is structured the way it is, because I know that if you're used to kind of a 12-step model or a recovery model, you might kind of come here expecting it's going to be more like a meeting, right? just some people sharing. And, and So this, this class is modeled more on a Buddhist meditation class uh, with the teacher and students Uh, and we meditate and then there's a talk and there's sort of this uh, different, it's not kind of just a uh, support group or just peer-led group Um, one of my hopes for the new building is that Spirit Rock will actually start either some actual like AA or NA or OA groups here or else Maybe just maybe start some Buddhist recovery groups a typical Buddhist recovery group is more like a 12-step meeting more like sharing there might be there is usually there's a period of meditation But it tends to be less like teacher-led. Uh, there's different models And if you're interested in in that kind of group, you should look at the uh, website uh, Buddhistrecovery.org which lists meetings um, and, and different you know, events of this kind, or, or of that kind, they, they vary. Um, we're actually um, a group of the people who lead Buddhist recovery groups and classes in the Bay Area uh, have been organizing recently, I'm one of the organizers, to start a Bay Area Buddhist recovery network, which is going to be mostly kind of an informational website and uh, something maybe where we'll have, uh, we're hoping to have a conference kind of where we'll have panels and discussions about different groups and different communities because you know there's different schools of Buddhism and, and these days there are, ma- many of the different schools of Buddhism are offering different types of recovery groups. So the Zen Center in San Francisco, for instance, has one of the longest standing uh, Buddhist recovery or Buddhist 12-step groups around. And uh and then the, many of the Shambhala centers have groups and many of the Insight centers as well. So uh, just for you to know that this is kind of a something that's growing and that there are different models for it. Um, you know, typically in this class, I, I kind of let my talk come out of uh, the step of the month. Yeah, so... Uh, Typically, I would be talking about step eight, that says we made a list of all those we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. But I'm I'm not going to do that tonight, um, just because I uh, you know, there's something else that I I just felt more uh, drawn to to talking about tonight. Uh, see how this comes out, and it, it's and it's so what I w- want to talk about tonight mostly is um what we call feeling feelings and uh you know i find that to be um something that's always relevant in my life and something that i've worked on uh, in a meditative way quite a bit and um that And in fact, uh, uh, you know, my meditation practice, uh, I focus much more on sort of the emotional field or emotional energetic field than I do on my breath. Um, And I I think I'm going to read a little bit from One Breath at a Time, because if you're familiar with this book, you know that in step six, there are three sections called Feeling Feelings. There's Feeling Feelings, Feeling Feelings 2, and Feeling Feelings 3. <laughs> As I, I, when I wrote this book, I didn't really have much of a plan. I kind of wrote it, like, just one word at a time. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I wrote Feeling Feelings, and then a couple days later, like, oh, I need to say something more about that. And then finally it was like, oh, wait, I've got to say this, too. So... Uh, feeling, feelings one isn't so much the, <laughs> well, I'll, I'll start with this. Though. Uh, what this first section is talking about, at least the starting point of it, is um, I talk about meeting someone, it was actually right here one night at one of my classes about 10 or 12 years ago, and someone talking about, uh, Trying to do loving kindness practice to counter the kind of negative voices in his head when he would meditate, you know, the the self hatred and the negative feelings, and and uh, that one of his teachers had said, "Well, if you have all that negativity, do loving kindness practice," and that's kind of a classic instruction in Buddhism, and one of the practices called replacing with the opposite if you're angry, to try to cultivate love. And if you're greedy, to try to cultivate generosity. Something like that. Uh, But this uh, man, this fellow, was finding that it wasn't working very well. That it was still kind of a struggle for him. And I suggested that maybe what was happening was that he was... um, kind of getting into a relationship of conflict with the negativity that that that's like oh I'm so negative I I have all these all this self-hatred I'll get rid of that by sending love to myself but maybe it's not really love maybe it's actually not liking the negativity (laughs) right just just a form another form of negativity (laughs) right Disguised as
1: love, I, you know, I'm gonna love you until you,
0: t- and I'm gonna love you until you stop being the way you are, until you start being the way I want you to be. <laughs> so, what I um, they do? Have
1: meetings for that. They do? Uh, <laughs> it's great. There's many opportunities.
0: So uh, I'll just read this little passage I said, as I listened to Brad, because this refers to something else, I thought of the passage in Jack Kornfield's book, A Path with Heart, that talks about insistent visitors, strong thoughts that repeat over and over this book. Kornfield suggests making a top ten list of such thoughts as a way of beginning to come to grips with those demons. He goes on to say, when any experience of body, heart, or mind Keeps repeating in consciousness, it's a signal that this visitor is asking for a deeper and fuller attention. In this model, you take an approach very different from replacing with the opposites. Instead, you engage more deeply with the experience, or really opening to it. So there's a really incredible chapter in this book. And, and this is a book that anybody who's interested in spiritual growth and psychological growth should have and read, <laughs> not just have on the bed. <laughs> so the, uh, ch- the chapter called Difficult Problems and Insistent Visitors. Uh, uh, um, I'm going to just talk about some of the tools here. I'm not going to read so much of it. But, so this is kind of a, a starting point uh, that's very, uh, a, a helpful starting point, I think, to say, in because med- I think we come to meditation very often with this kind of, either aversive or controlling attitude and it as i say it may be dressed up as something else but when when i come in and say oh you know i've got all these thoughts i'm going to i want to just you know learn to meditate so these thoughts will will go away and stop bothering me and or maybe i'll say something gentler like maybe i can just quiet my mind a little bit and that's great, and, and certainly that's one of the things that can happen through meditation. But we just have to be so careful about what that attitude is, what the kind of energetic attitude is in that practice, in that effort. So, Right effort, one of the keys to Buddhist practice, it's part of the Eightfold Path. Right effort doesn't include... An aggressiveness or an aversiveness. And it also doesn't include a greediness, a grasping. So, this is what makes it so subtle and difficult because, of course, we come here wanting something or wanting to get rid of something. So, there's my, that's why I walked in the door here. I didn't come out here. Because the ceiling was so nice, you know, <laughs> this room, you know, it's remarkable that it's, it's got such positive energy because it's kind of a dump, you know. <laughs>
2: you
0: know, we come here to accomplish something, to either get something or to get rid of something or both. And yet, if we take that energy into our practice, we're just creating more of it. That's why, in case you were wondering why meditation was so difficult, that's why, essentially. There's some other reasons, but that's one of the key reasons. So in our practice, we need to... uh, This is one of the things you need to kind of track. So in meditation, I think most of the time it's not so much that I'm just doing this, like I'm just paying attention to my breath. Oh, my mind's running. Oh, my breath. Mind, breath. You know, Sound, breath. I need to also, so that's part, that's the sort of center, like, form of the meditation. But there needs to be this other awareness, tracking along, which is going, noticing how, how I'm reacting when I notice my mind has wandered. So when I notice my mind has wandered, do I go,
3: ah, shit, there I go again, god damn
0: it. Come on, get back what's wrong with you? Or do I go, "Ah, you know, whatever, my mind's wandering, don't worry about it. Or do I go, that's really interesting, you know, I know my mind's wandering and I'm supposed to come back to breath, but I think I'm going to think about this for a while, you know, or or something else, right? What happens in that moment? So that's something that you kind of need to track. So that, because that tells you, what's the nature of my effort in this moment? What's the, you know, how am I... How am I meditating? You know, what's, what's going on behind it? Um, you know, what's, uh, uh, when I'm paying attention to my breath, am I like, you know, uh, trying, uh, I've got, I'm supposed to feel, well, I'm not feeling anything, what, where's, not, you know, come on. You know, there's so many ways we can tie ourselves up in this practice. I mean, I remember ex- talking about meditation to an old friend years ago, and she had never meditated, and I kind of described it, and she said, it sounds kind of like saying, don't think of a pink elephant, you know, when, which, of course, you then immediately think of a pink elephant, right? But it, it, and it is sort of like that. It's like, so, what to do? Well... What we find, or I'll say, say what I found in my practice is, is that I, I, there were some other ways I needed to pay attention. So the, there was this moment, Feeling Feelings 2 here, describes this, uh, a couple of moments on this retreat a long time ago. And it's funny for me reading it because, you know, this is something that happened uh, 33 years ago on a retreat that I was on. And it's still uh, today. This is like, oh, I'm glad I read this this afternoon. You know, wow, that's that's helpful. And what happened was I was on this three-month meditation retreat, so I'm like, I'm going for it. You know, I'm getting enlightened. This is before I was sober, so I had slightly different, you know. My addiction might have been affecting my meditation. I don't know. <laughs> Um, And a couple, you know, I'm on this retreat and, you know, you're you're not doing anything except sitting, walking, sitting, walking, lunch, sitting, walking, sitting, walking, dinner, sitting, walking, sitting, walking, wake up, sitting, walking, sitting. And you kind of can't help but settle in, you know, Uh, your mind starts to quiet down, it doesn't, you can't avoid it. It's it's a very powerful way to practice uh, in this stillness, and you do you meet with the teachers, and there's instruction and everything. I don't want you to think that you're just left off there. Um, every few days you meet with the teacher, and every, usually every day there's a talk and, and meditation instruction. So um, there's a little content. But I noticed, I felt like okay, I'm I'm kind of getting this. This is really working. I'm settling in. And, I'd only been meditating this form for about a year. I'd been on a couple of other retreats. This was my first long, really long retreat. But at a certain point, I started to feel like fuzzy. Yeah, I just was like, something's missing here. And I walked up to Joseph Goldstein, who was Jack Kornfield's teaching partner in those days. It was in the morning. I think I remember this really clearly, you know how that is. Yeah. It's a long time ago, but I have this clear image of it the the there was this was an Insight Meditation society in Massachusetts, and I, you know the meditation hall and kind of climbing over the zafus to and it was after the morning the first sitting after breakfast, they would always give the instructions the meditation instructions so after that sitting, I walked up to Joseph and I'm like, Joseph, I just wanted to ask you you' know, whispering ask him a question I'm like I said you know i'm I feel like I'm settling in, but there's something that's kind of dull there's something it just feels like something's kind of missing i'm not sure what it is and he just turns to me and goes don't be afraid to feel and it was kind of like I'm like what i'm like i is, who are you talking to like what, what how, how can you come up with that thing you know you, you know i mean he probably met with me once maybe in those two weeks, I don't know if I'd even, maybe once or twice, not like he knew me, there were a hundred people, literally, on the retreat, so, he walks away, and I kind of like, I just, you know, really didn't know what he meant, but I started to kind of ask myself, if I'm afraid to feel, then let me see if I can, you know, Figure this out, and I started to kind of work with it, mainly in walking meditation. Kind of stop and go. Now, what am I feeling? (laughs) Within like a week or ten days, I had an interview with Jack Cornfield. That's what we call the meetings with the teachers. You know, and you get like ten or fifteen minutes with the teacher, and it's like three days in between. talks, so you kind of go in there with like three days worth of, like you haven't talked to anybody, and you're like, you're like okay, like, uh, can, you know, you have like a <laughs> ten-page list of things you want to talk about, and they're always like, they let you talk for like ten seconds, thirty seconds at the most, and then they interrupt you, and then they start talking, and the rest of the time, you're like, but I didn't ask my other 73 questions, you know. But I'm talking to Jack about what's going on in my practice. I don't, didn't say anything about what Joseph had said to me. At a certain point, he just said, "Your practice is to feel." I was like, oh, "This is a conspiracy!" <laughs> you know, this guy's obviously been reading my mail. You know, and I really thought of myself as a very emotional person. Others might have called me neurotic. I don't know, but but you know, I felt like I sort of knew about my feelings because I was depressed most of the time. So I thought. I know what I'm feeling. I'm depressed, you know.
1: <laughs>
0: or so it seemed. But, uh, you know, I, I realized, I mean, these guys are pointing to something, and I've got to come to understand this. And Jack talked a little bit about fe- feeling feelings in the body. You know, at the time, as I say, I kind of thought this was about me. Like, they were, it was like, oh, this guy. You know he really needs to deal with his feelings but once I read this book <laughs> I realized oh <laughs> it's like this is and a, a lot of people in practice uh, uh, come up against this so at a certain point in that retreat I continued you know, I started to really work with this, I think, as I say, more in the walking meditation and movement. But in sitting meditation, I continued to try to follow the very strict kind of uh, vipassana practice of noting everything in, out, in, out, thinking, thinking, judging, judging, hearing, hearing, in, out, in, out, and just, uh, which is a, a very useful practice on certain levels. But after about a month or six weeks of it, I was sick of it. And um, at a certain point, again, I kind of have this memory of, of this sitting where uh, for some of the mornings I was ringing the bell at the end of the morning meditation and I was sitting up on the dais. And I remember just kind of giving up, practice, like meditating like doing what I thought was meditation, this form of in, out, noting everything and trying to, you know, pick everything apart and just kind of going, ah. And there was just this kind of falling into, and what what I would say, it was just falling into awareness of awareness, that just awareness itself, because I'd been practicing for six weeks or however long, that was really strong, but I hadn't seen it because I was looking at the content constantly and I kind of broke through into, oh there's just this space and but the way I kind of went into it was through feeling because uh, feeling emotions, whatever we call them, uh, don't have much form, uh, I think, uh, I, I'm not sure what I'm going to say, so we'll see what comes out here. But uh, when, we're, when we're meditating with, uh, in a very form-based way, that is using words and uh, specific efforts to pay attention to specific details of sensation in, out, in, out, then we're very connected kind of with content. And uh, the feelings, because they don't have anything very solid to them, they're so kind of ephemeral, that connecting with that, connected, brought me more into awareness itself. And so it was kind of like feelings and awareness. And, and I started to experience meditation as a field, rather than as a uh, point. Okay. That makes sense. So when I'm paying attention to the breath, it's just a point here, or here. but for me, I pay attention to my breath here, now you know. Uh, and but this field is much more undefined and open and it sort of contains it's all the content is there, but it's also this just sense of the field, which is awareness itself. So here we have, Jack's chapter on this stuff. Um, So, I'll just, I'll read this little part. It says, this is the beginning of this chapter called Difficult Problems and Insistent Visitors. In the course of our practice of naming the common demons and hindrances, kind of what I was talking about, that form, we may come to encounter the underlying forces that cause them to return over and over again. Fear, confusion, anger, and ambition often in- appear as insistent visitors in our meditation. Even after we feel we should know better, they will come again anyway. Now we must look more deeply into how to work with the repeated difficulties that arise in our spiritual life. <clears throat> so, there, you know, this... Chapters, rich and complicated, but just to n- note that the fir- first subheading in the chapter is called "Expand the Field of Attention." So this is exactly what I discovered accidentally, and maybe I, I'd probably been gotten some instruction about it, but didn't realize it. You know, I don't know if you lo- that happens to you, but so you know, th- he talks about this very thing of kind of stepping back from the Details of things and trying to watch this field a little bit more, because what happens, as with the guy that I mentioned in this book, where he's focusing on loving kindness, is that we don't notice that behind this repetition of thought or these uh, um, sensations and you know tensions in the body, that there's something else that's actually the engine. And I very much think of it as an engine, As it, that is, it's a thing that's got energy, and it's, it's running it. It's running this show, but we're paying attention to the show instead of seeing the engine. And so when we expand the field of attention beyond the, oh, I'm thinking, no, come back, breath, thinking, think. when we expand it and we start to see that, oh, that stuff is just the manifestation of this underlying energy, then we're getting at more the root of it, and this is where it's actually possible to cut it off a little bit. Not to you know again, it's, it's, I don't, I don't, you know, using that language is uh, aversive in a way. But there's uh, what's what's going on. Just to come back to what I started with is that. You know, the essential energy, I would have to say, there are two forms of energy, desire and aversion. Those are the things that keep everything churning. And desire takes many different forms, fantasies, plans, uh, you, know, um, you know, sexual craving, uh, f- hung, physical hung, hunger, you know, for food. Aversion takes maybe even more forms, you know, fear, anxiety. Judgment, uh, self-criticism, criticism of the world, not liking the way I look, the way I feel, the way I think—you know—all these man- manifest or manifold forms. But they're essentially desire and aversion. Okay, it's easier to just like to see them as that. And and when we get to the level of energy with them, then we can see that. The, for me, it's aversion a lot of the time, so I'll, I'll talk about that. That when you know my thoughts are churning, and then I step back and see, oh, there's this feeling that's running them. But even more than the feeling is the aversion. Sometimes, sometimes the feeling is aversion, but often enough there's an aversion to the feeling. Which is why Joseph says don't be afraid to feel. Because a lot of the time, why I'm thinking is because I don't want to feel the thing that I'm feeling. I want to think my way out of that problem. And if I can, but if I can let go of the feeling, of the fear of that feeling, which is a form of aversion to the feeling, then it's just the feeling. And it might be unpleasant, but... Of its nature, it is impermanent, so it's not going to be here forever. And it's really, it doesn't hurt as much as a toothache, pretty much, most of them. There are some that hurt more than that, but most of them don't hurt as much as a toothache. I don't know what good that does (laughs) me, but it's, it's just to create a little context, right? It's not the end of the world, right? And when I can just kind of go, oh, it's it's okay. Unpleasant, fear, resistance. Feel. Very interesting, that level. Because first of all, that level is nonverbal. That solves your first problem, which is that you've got all these thoughts in your head. If you're just paying attention to a feeling without resisting to it, you're just feeling it you're not in your head, you're just, you're, and I'm not sure where you are, where are feelings. It's, they feel, they're, it's kind of like they're in your body, but they're not exactly in your body. I don't know. Again, mystery, don't need to know. I can feel them, though, I can be aware of them. And so, right away, I'm kind of moving into this other state, which is actually more pleasant, which is like, no, I'm not just caught up, it's just a feel. I'm just sitting here with this feeling. Huh, nothing really going on. And that, because there isn't all this agitation and noise, the mind then can move into a place of real calm and peace. Because it's fundamentally a state of acceptance. That's what the Big Book tells us acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. In Buddhist terms, we think of, uh, I think we can. Equate acceptance with what's called equanimity, a balanced mind, an undisturbed mind, a clear, undisturbed mind. And this kind of kind of points to how the problem isn't the problem. It's our reaction to the problem. The feeling isn't the problem. It's our reaction to the feeling. It's our fear of the feeling. It's our, you know, all the things we try to do to fix the feeling, which, by the way, might be related to your addiction if you happen to be an addict, right? Uh, one of the you know, what what drives addiction, but craving and aversion, right? I want to feel good, I don't want to feel bad. That's why I feed my head. You know? So this is this practice I'm talking about is directly related to recovery and to addiction, because of course, what causes relapse feelings I think mostly uh, you, know, you might not you probably don't see them because you, you know you're caught up in your worries or your thoughts and your you know your cravings but if you can get back again to the visceral level of just feeling the feeling then you don't have to act on it and this is another one of the key aspects of this practice is that it allows you to come into a place of non-reactivity with your feelings. That doesn't mean you won't ever take action as a result of your feelings, but it means that you can see, oh, I'm having this feeling, I can hold this feeling, I can be with this feeling, and then if I realize, oh, you know, this is anger, and I'm angry because that person hurt me because they said that, then maybe I can, you know, do something constructive with that, rather than I'm having this feeling, ah! You know, and I act on it or I speak on it. So, this practice works both on the kind of daily real life level and very much in the meditative level. I found it really helpful and find it really helpful to work with this on the meditative level because it increases my capacity to be aware of feelings outside the meditative you know, construct. Uh, And so, meditation, one of the purposes of meditation, as far as I'm concerned, is to train me to be able to do certain things in in normal daily life. And one of them is to to feel feelings and to not necessarily uh, be reactive to them. If something comes up and you really want to interrupt me. Or just want to interrupt me. You don't have to really want to interrupt. Me. You can do that. You can do that. Um, although I'm going to leave space at the end of this uh, when I run out of things to say. Um, so I was reading this chapter in Jack's book again today, and I hadn't read it probably in years, and it just it really impressed the heck out of me. Um, the, just to go through some of the the sub. Uh, headings so the next subheading after expand the field of attention is a full awareness of the feelings that's a lot of what I'm talking about the next one is discover what is asking for acceptance again uh, what is asking for acceptance open through the center Uh, this I think is uh, one of the thing, things that um, I was I talk about in, in this chapter in my book as well, which is uh, not accepting the first answer when I'm really trying to investigate, like, what's going on? What is this feeling? And uh, because, you know, very often you kind of go, oh, I'm feeling... Uh. You know, and and the, you know, I'm feeling angry. Oh, and so to if you're doing this is in kind of form of inquiry. It's kind of like, what's behind the anger? Oh, there's fear. Oh, okay, what's behind the fear? Oh, there's ego protection. Or you know, it can go on and on. Uh, and uh, so. This is a practice, I think it's really important to not take the first answer, but to keep looking underneath. So, um, in my section, Feeling Feelings 3, if you will, uh, I talk about being on a retreat. And this is uh, in 1996, so 15 years after the three-month retreat, still trying to figure this stuff out. Um, and how, uh, I often had noticed, and I was noticing on this retreat, that if I woke up early, I, I kind of had this, uh, anxiety. Uh, so, uh, I, let me just read this instead of trying to describe it. So, uh, and I write this in the present tense, uh. I say, I wake up at 4 a.m. on the third day of the retreat. I have the job of morning bell ringer, so I need to be up before everyone else, but I'm not due to begin ringing for an hour. That feeling is there. I've felt it before on retreats, and I don't like it. Whenever I'm up at this hour in retreat, I think I should start meditating, but something's telling me to stay in bed. If I start practicing at 4 a.m., I'll be so hungry in a couple hours that I'll be miserable. Besides, I probably need more sleep. If I get up now, I'll wind up dragging through the whole day. I, I roll over and decide to wait for the alarm. On day four, I wake up early again. Same feelings. Yuck. It occurs to me that I should examine this feeling. Use the mindfulness technique. It's what I'm here on retreat for, after all. I move slowly, pulling my legs out from the covers and placing them on the cool floor. I try to keep my attention on the feeling I'm having as I begin to get dressed. Um, As I stay with the thoughts and feelings, it hits me that what I'm feeling is fear. How obvious. I wonder how I could have missed this. Fear of hunger, fear of sleepiness. Okay, I got it. I stay with the feeling as I shower and dress. Before long, it's dissipated and I've moved into a more comfortable place. The close attention was my step six, I have this in step six of my book, watching my experience with the willingness to have it removed. The next morning, I again awake early, again the feeling of fear. I connect with the feeling, it's there in my solar plexus. As I pay closer attention, I see that there's a fluttering in my chest, as though a butterfly were trying to escape my heart. This fluttering seems to be the core of the fear, Again, I shower and dress, and the fluttering fades. I stand in the middle of my little room and contemplate what I've just felt and done. A flutter, a mood, emotions, thoughts, rolling over and going back to sleep. Did all this arise simply from this flutter? Are my thoughts, emotions, and actions all triggered by a tiny sensation in my chest? I've learned the habit of examining my emotions through the body. In this way, I've been able to maintain my balance around fear, sadness, and anger. But when I identify these emotions, I also make them real. A story gets built around them. I'm feeling this because I need to do such-and-such about this feeling. There are times when this can be helpful, but other times when the examination of emotions can become another form of obsession always keeping tabs on what I'm feeling, always having a problem that needs to be solved. My life becomes this emotional drama. Feeling the flutter in my chest opened me to another view. Sometimes a feeling is just a feeling. It doesn't really mean anything. If I can stop at the visceral level without labeling or analyzing, the feeling can just be there. There's no need to do anything about it to solve it or cure it. In Buddhism, this is the recognition of not-self. The feelings are not me, and they have no intrinsic meaning. They are simply feelings. It's only my thought processes and emotional states that create the idea that these feelings are who I am. So I, I thought that was interesting when I wrote it. <laughs> I still find it interesting. Um, uh, to kind of take this, through this whole process, and then come to this really simple idea of like because emotions are so difficult to even identify or to to know what they are and are some of the emotions we feel just sensations that we've come to associate with something you know my heart's beating fast so I feel fe- I think that's fear and I start to think about fear or, you know, whatever it is, you know, that we just kind of, uh, you know, you feel tired and draggy and then that kind of feels like depressing and then you start having depressing thoughts and then it's like, I'm depressed, you know, but maybe you were just tired, right? So this is just another piece for me of this whole exploration of kind of looking at it, taking it apart, essentially deconstructing the experience, taking it down to its most essential elements to see what what is this? What's running my life? Because to a great extent, my emotions seem to run my life. So, um, you know, I encourage you to, to work on this level, both in practice. I'm sure you are working on this level uh, in life and in practice. Uh, maybe one more little piece that I'll read here, which brings this into a practice. This is from Ajahn Amaro, the Theravadan monk, one of our dear uh, friends and uh, formerly a spirit teacher. When we notice we are in a particular mood of anxiety or excitement, energy, laziness, restless, or nameless dukkha, our old friend, dukkha is the word for suffering in Buddhism, where we know we are suffering but we can't figure out what it is we're suffering about, that feeling, (laughs) rather than trying to analyze the emotion, we just bring it into our attention in the body. We use body consciousness as a way of bringing mindfulness to that feeling. What does anger feel like? What does resentment feel like? Know it directly and feel it in the body. In many ways, this bypasses the processes of entanglement that we create, because when we bring our attention to physical feelings, we can't buy into them in the same way. We feel the imbalance that attachment to the emotional state causes. This is a tremendously useful way of training the mind to de-emphasize the intellectualizing process, the attempt to solve our problems just by thinking about them. Often, even if we have solved the problem in our brain, if we were worried about something and with logic have removed the source of the worry, the body can still be filled with tension and anxiety. It is charged up to worry about something, so we just finish one worry, but since the body is all set to keep going, it causes the brain to cook up another one. It finds something else to worry about. Since the body is tense and agitated, it can cause the merest thought to turn into a major problem. If we bring attention to the body and contemplate what is worry like, where does it sit in the body? We can feel it like a knot of tension in the solar plexus in our gut. Every time you find your mind worrying about something, bring your attention down to your stomach, your solar plexus, and notice how it feels, then just let it relax. Take your attention off the thing you were worrying about, let your stomach soften, and notice the effect it has upon the mind. It is a mysterious and magical thing, but suddenly it seems to be much less of a problem. The situation might still be there, but we are not so upset about it. We see it more clearly. This process opens us to that spaciousness which is beyond the feeling. I like that because it's so specific about how to work with it. So That's a great... Great practice. Noah Levine talks about soft belly meditation. And that's a great, very simple instruction. And not to, You don't have to get into all the complexities of uh, trying to unravel it all. Just soften your belly. So we have a few minutes left. If there are any thoughts, questions, corrections, complaints? Yes. Hi. Oh, Hi, Paul.
2: and stuff like that.
0: Um, you want to take the microphone just for the, it will be of service to the uh, those who might listen to this on the internet. Hello. <laughs>
2: um, so I'm an anger, I'm an anger type. Mm. That's what ran my life. Uh, fight or flight, and uh, chasing that elusive. Called uh, emotional sobriety. I had to first figure out what I was feeling, and uh, and I realized that my my head is like a bullet train. My thoughts go real fast, and uh, and there's a little donkey train going to the bottom of the Grand Canyon right inside here. Mm. So, you know, it takes about a week for (laughs) the message to get from here Uh to here and then the answer to get from here to here. Uh And this bullet train is on something completely different, doesn't know what it's being presented with, doesn't want to bother with it. I'm sorry we don't have time for you. Whatever you are, (laughs) thought, feeling, whatever. And it takes off. And uh, uh, so my practice is, uh, well kind of what you said I just don't pay attention to what Mm -hmm. this thing is thinking I certainly don't grab onto the first interpretation interpretation of what I'm what I think I'm feeling is not actually a feeling Mm -hmm. that's a thought Um, so yeah yeah, it's a process yeah anyways thanks
0: yeah that's that's a good point too you know the other thing about uh, it's true that emotions as ajanamo was kind of pointing out things kind of get stuck uh, emotions kind of get stuck in the body that the the mind has moved on but but if we don't stay connected to the visceral part of it in the body then it'll sneak up and and kind of grab us back into that negativity so it's it's why yeah just kind of giving the space for the feelings I mean yeah it'd be nice if if feelings would go away as quickly as thoughts do, you know. Well, maybe it would be nice. (laughs) I'm not gonna vote for that one. Could be even more confusing to be alive. Other thoughts? Hmm. Well, Okay. Would you use the microphone? Just, yeah, it's still on.
4: My name's Michelle. Mm-hmm. Um, Michelle. Michelle. I, my therapist has been tricking me into doing this, mm-hmm. and into I'm feeling, realizing feeling. now it's yeah. pretty remarkable, um, and I just thought it was kind of a weird sidetrack thing she was doing. Um, <laughs> I tell a story, and she says, okay, stop. What does it feel like? And I said, mm-hmm. What are you talking about? She said, Just tell me what it feels like. I said, Physically, like what does it feel like? So I'll be like, She's not listening. I said, well, the story's <laughs> right. not over yet. Right. You know? It's and all about the story. <laughs> yeah. And so she, so she'll say, Well, where do you feel it? And then so she'll just ask me a series of questions, and I'll say, You know, oh, I, I feel it in my throat. Well, what it, what does your fro- throat feel mm-hmm. like? And I'll say, My throat's really tight. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like I can get air. She'll say, "Okay, just stay with it, and like, stay with what?" She's like, "Stay with what the tightness feels like," mm-hmm. and we'll. She's like, "We got time. We still got twenty minutes, you know." <laughs> so we'll sit there and. You're like I'm paying for this. Yeah. <laughs> you <know." laughs> and you know, she says, "Just, just stay right there in that place, mm-hmm. and it just." goes away, and then she says, now back to the story. And I'm like, I don't remember what I was saying. Mm. And she says, oh, okay. <laughs> That's you too know. bad. <laughs> so, it, um, I, I feel, I realize now that there is sort of a, a shortcut or a quick path to get there by just asking yourself,
1: yeah.
4: what does it physically feel like? Mm-hmm. And going to that place and sitting there. And it is amazing how it doesn't take long to to pass,
1: mm-hmm, yeah. um,
4: it's hard to do though. Yes. Just by deciding I'm going to sit and feel a feeling, mm-hmm. I have to come up with a story. It's not hard mm-hmm. to do that, mm-hmm. and then you figure out where it, where it is. Yeah. Um, but I realize now she's on to something. So yeah.
1: I'm sit <laughs> she
0: probably read one of Jack Cornfield's yeah. <laughs> books. <or something. laughs> Thanks. Yeah, that's great. Thank you, Michelle. Uh, um, right,
1: Michelle can I that? Yeah. Oh. Good. <coughs> were you going to say something? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> my name's Aminta. Um, and I, ha- I just wanted to say something about my experience uh, here tonight. Was that when you were given the instructions, mm-hmm. um, I was enjoying it. I love guided meditation. Um, I, especially because my, when someone says we're going to meditate for this amount of time, I have a lot of resistance to that, and yeah. I resent the amount of time, no matter what it is. If it's 20 minutes, if it's eight hours, I'm like, whatever, whatever it is, too long, it's, too it's too long, short, too short, too long, too, too, long. too, oh, too long. It's <laughs> just too long, <laughs> Yeah, um, and so I love the guided part because I'm like, oh, great, we're using up some time, <laughs> yeah. um, kill
0: some time, yeah. So, yeah. so there I was enjoying that, yeah.
1: and I was, and I loved it. it was so specific, and it was really body. Oh, my muscles around my mm-hmm. eyes, and mm-hmm. these muscles, that, and you were giving it. You know, oh, I'm following your voice, and then you said, and now shift into the feeling state. Uh And I was like, whoa. (laughs) It was as if I had been being towed by this really noisy plane. And I thought, oh, this is what a plane ride is like, where it's noisy, there's this engine, there's rotors, and then suddenly they went click, and they clicked off, and it turned out, actually I was in a glider. Mm. And then I was like, whoa. This is what flying is like. (laughs) It's really different. And it was like you just suddenly left me. And I was, you know, I had a moment of like, what am I supposed to do here? (laughs) (laughs) And then I, and then it was, I moved on. But what was amazing is that then you began to talk and there you were talking about that thing I just experienced, which was that, yeah, I don't know very much about that state. (laughs) I know a lot about the other things, the eye muscles and the leg muscles and the position. Of my, I don't know very much about how I feel, so thank you. That was great.
0: Well, yes, and you've, you've discovered my strategy
1: <laughs>
0: of meditation instruction, which is to start people, try to get them grounded in their body and kind of relaxed, and, and I'm here, and then kind of expand the field of awareness. So that and it's like sounds and then it's like, oh, and, and it's become more subtle, right? Oh, feelings, right? And then, and then it's kind of, what, what I think is helpful is to maintain some of that groundedness as you then open into this more spacious and, and less definable place of feeling. And then you can always come back. Like to, oh, okay, let me just come back to my breath, into my body. You know, I'm getting lost. I'm just getting, or, but, yeah. And, and really, that's, I like to hold all of that, try to hold the body and the feelings and the sounds together in this field, and then um, just kind of rest in that. And we talk about resting in awareness, you know, and not trying to do anything with it. You know. Uh, and, you know, and then the thoughts will come in and take you out, and then you just lose the whole thing and come in. It's, that's why you're like, all right, just let me come back, start again, and, and you know, play with that. It, uh, I, there are, there, I think there are other teachers who teach that process. A lot of times, though, it's taught kind of reverse from that, that people say, start with your breath, and then after a while you can start to expand it. But I like to come to the breath last, because when I, come to, when I try to pay attention to the breath first, I can't get there. It's like, that's too precise from when I start meditating. When I start meditating, I need to just like hang out. Okay, I'm just here and this stuff. Okay. Uh, let me relax. Okay. Now I'm ready to kind of focus on my breath and it kind of takes time for me to coalesce around it. And then, and then I can kind of do this, you know, when I need to expand, I can open up and then when it gets lost, you know, I'll, I'll come back into the breath and, That that's a nice share. Thanks. I like the glider. (laughs) It is like that. That's how it feels to me too. Don't keep bringing it back to me. I don't want it. Um, We don't have to go on. uh, Yes, there's someone in the back, right? I know you have thoughts.
3: Neil, alcoholic. Um, So. I have a sponsor who, um, the the reason that I'm still alive is because he's very clearly explained to me that feelings aren't facts uh-huh. and um, right. that I can't think myself into right acting, but I can act myself into right thinking. And I know I'm speaking in platitudes, but I no, have to no, keep it good, simple. Those are good ones. Um, and he's also told me that my mind is a very scary place and I shouldn't go there by myself. Uh-huh. Um, so I guess... Um, <laughs> What I'm aware of right now is that I'm very afraid of everything that you're presenting yeah. because either I'm doing it wrong and you've been doing it right the whole time, so I'm screwing up, or that you're trying to trick me into doing it wrong and mm-hmm. then I'm going to go and relapse. Um, so I'm having a very yeah. hard time connecting the the, um, the searching through feelings with um, what I've been taught. So I guess I'm just wondering if you could... Do you do you see where I'm yeah, coming Yeah, no, those
0: from are those are really good comments, and uh, and uh, I'll tr- I'll try to address some of them. Right, given that I only have four minutes, um, first of all, <laughs> I think that what I've been saying about feelings is quite in harmony with the idea that they're not facts; they're just these kind of forms of they're energies that come and go. But they're not uh, they're not giving me accurate information about anything. But that doesn't mean I don't need to feel them. <laughs> because if I don't pay attention to them, if I'm not mindful of them, they are very powerful, especially when they're running in the background. You know, it's like a, a malware, right?
1: <laughs> so,
0: <laughs> so we really want to like be aware of them, run the virus program on them and, you know, just, okay, there they are. Um, but sure, they're not facts. That's for sure, and that's one of the big problems for me. Is like thinking, "Oh, I'm feeling this because," and then you know, that, and then the story. Um, the you know, the The phrase I I love the phrase: "You can't act your way or think your way into right action. Uh, you need to act your way into right thinking." And it on the surface it seems to conflict with the with Buddhism, but if you take uh, what uh, I think that I think that it's true in the sense in the gross sense (laughs) we need to do the right thing you know we need to show up even though we don't feel like it we need to you know not drink or use no matter what you know those kind of actions right but there's a reason why you're doing those actions before you do those actions, you have a thought, maybe conscious, maybe not conscious, which is embodied in the first line of the Dhammapada, the famous Buddhist, ancient Buddhist teaching, which says, one of the translations says, the mind is the forerunner of all things. So that seems to contradict the idea, right? But, but it, fundamentally, it's true that, you know, why are you, you know, taking these actions? There's a thought behind it, it, and and it's the right thought. It's I need to do this, but it's the the big change that needs to come about through true recovery has to can only happen through the action. The actions are what ultimately, you know, build the foundation for it. I don't know if that explains it or if I made if that made any sense. It sort of made sense to me as I was saying it, but I got confused at the end, so... Um.
2: Just don't drink. No. Yeah. I can do that.
0: You know... It, <laughs> the, one of the principles of Buddhism is that all actions have an intention behind them. and. Usually we don't really see the intention. But right intention is a critical part of right action. So, for instance, if you go, if you get sober for somebody else, even though you're doing the right thing, it's probably, until you start to want it for yourself, it's probably not going to stick. And it's true that many people do get sober for weird reasons, but ultimately, you know, they get it. But if they don't, you know, if you don't get the strong motivation and intention for yourself, I don't think you can stay sober, even if you're going to 90 meetings in 90 days, you know, you still will relapse because your mind doesn't want it, you know, so in that way, I don't think you can, you maybe, hopefully, if you keep going to those meetings, you're going to hear the thing that's going to change your mind, like we're saying, right? But, but um, so again, I probably contradicted myself, so. I know. But, you know, absolutely, you know, I, I will also say that I was interested and into Buddhism before I got sober. When I started working the 12 steps, I couldn't make them fit together. It took me, it wasn't until I was six years sober that I started to really fit them together. So if you're not at least five years, don't worry about it. Yes. How, how long have you been? sober? A uh, year and a half. Good. You got a few more years. <laughs> just, just don't drink or use in the meantime.
2: <laughs>
0: and you know, and do what your sponsor says. <laughs> but not forever. <laughs> I think after 20 years everybody should be able to, you know, <laughs> anyway. Uh, you know, and and you've got to ask him, what? Am, how am I supposed to meditate if I don't go into my own mind? You know, that's,
1: mm-hmm. right, so.
0: so let's, we'll do a little closing uh, ritual here. we come in the door for ourselves to deal with our own issues or to get what we want, whether it's recovery or peace or less stress. But eventually we go out the door and take it to others. In both our recovery and our practice of meditation and spiritual growth we come to this place, this recognition that it's not about fixing ourselves or getting something for ourselves that our Healing really expresses itself in giving it away. In the 12 steps we do this in a very practical and literal way when we carry the message. In Buddhism we do this also in that practical way. We also do it in an internal way, a vow a dedication of merit and this vow or a dedication is a kind of act of generosity of giving away that which we treasure the most our awakening our spiritual growth So, in that spirit tonight, we dedicate the merit of any effort we've applied here, of any insight, of any peace that's come. We offer that to all beings. May all beings be free from the suffering of addictive behaviors. May all beings find peace Wisdom, and Compassion. Thank you for coming tonight. I didn't mention, especially for those who are new here, that I am supported really just by your donations in the basket. they charge you to get in and then they ask you to give more to get out. Um, it's called, they get you coming and going. but Whatever you can give is very much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit